Okay, so we we uh, we had a nice discussion earlier, but I would like to know more about this little game theory that you're running tonight. Can you t- can you tell me now? Oh, oh, just a tiny preview. Yeah. Well, the question is, how is war possibly profitable? I mean, this is a fundamental question that we we know it's profitable for specific individuals, right? Uh-huh. Hook onto the government apparatus and so right. on. Uh, it's profitable for Blackwater. It's profitable for the military-industrial complex. The question is, how is it possibly profitable as a whole to have a massive industry designed to destroying things? Right. And I think that the only fundamental answer... I mean, there are two answers that you can come up with. One is the basic pillaging. You yeah. know, like you go you go steal someone's grain or their bread or something like that and, you know, whatever, they're women. But people don't really do that anymore. I mean, no, war doesn't no, consist of yeah. that anymore. No. I mean, it used to be up until up until the 20th century, that was the main purpose of war, was mm. to get to get people to work as your slaves, to get, you know, to get resources that you could right. steal for yourself. But that's not really the model of war in the 20th century, is it? Well, yeah, I mean, basically or, that works until somebody figures out better technology. Like yeah. the guy who invents a steel sword suddenly is, you know, better off. And how do you right. get a steel sword? Well, you have to have capital, you have to have mm-hmm. incentives, you have mm-hmm. to have some kind of market right. for that stuff. And steel, of course, was probably invented like technology, not for government, but for private individuals, and then right. government just took it over, right? So the question, how is it possible that blowing things up and, and the human disassembly plant known as war could possibly be profitable? And, I mean, even in the short run, I mean, there's no business plan called, I'm dynamiting stuff, you know, right. and, and what do you want to invest, right? right. Um, and so, um, I really think that it's only through fiat currency. Certainly total war can't possibly be profitable. Well, it can't be a coincidence that we got total war. And and I only know this because, I mean, Mises writes about this. I guess every war historian writes about this. Yeah. That, that wars before the 20th century were, were of a different character. Uh, yes, they were destructive, but there was... Um, like 2,000 knights yeah. in a corner somewhere, you know, yeah. three miles away. They don't even know there's a war. Yeah, war Voltaire there. said this, that, that most Europeans were just were free to ignore all, all wars between governments. And governments. Uh, yeah. In general, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's this weird thing where, you know, when we look back in history, all we see are the wars, but the general population saw very little of them. No, that's right. Or, or anything of their leaders at all. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a pathetic way that historians tell history, really. History of leaders and wars and everything. That's not the history of real people. Not, no, yeah. no. And that's one of the things I was grateful for was that we did actually focus on real history of real people uh, when I was doing my master's in particular. Yeah. There was a, quite an emphasis on that, which comes out of a lot of the socialist tradition. Like It does. Come, like, yeah. like, let's look at the lives uh, of the workers oh, it's, rather it's than actually the, king, the right? That's right. The new left was just fantastic in its, yeah. its innovation and historical. Yeah. So, but the total war, I think it required two things. And one is um, well understood, the other is not. I think it required, I don't know that it's entirely an accident, Jeff, that total war occurred about a generation after governments took over education. Huh. Right? Because as children, we bond with whoever raises us. That's right. And when governments took over government education, sorry, the education of children, I don't think it's a huge stretch to say that they became psychologically like parents for people. Yeah. And then when the parent demands sacrifice, the child is yeah. resistant. Like, well, it, certainly, it's not easy to resist. It was public. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about this now that you said this because um, so I only know really well about the American experience, but mm-hmm. there was no such thing really as an American civic religion until uh, public school. Mm-hmm. 
uh, public school is the thing that unified people, gave people a, 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 a sort of a national story. I mean, you know, the whole thing about the founding fathers was largely a Gilded Age invention. You oh, know, yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so we got you know this, this mythology about the great George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, whatever. Um, so we yeah we began to cobble together the civic religion, and so then suddenly you have the the flag and the liturgy surrounding the flag, and now suddenly you have uh, to a pledge. You yeah, know, yeah. and all this stuff comes about with public education. There's a sort of, there's your opportunity to, to teach and preach and, and impose the catechism of, of civic life on, on the nation as a whole. Yeah. And part of that, yeah, is this, is this war religion that if you sacrifice your life for the nation, that makes you holy and good and probably a saint. Yeah, and... Um saying no to those who've educated you is not kind of how we're designed. We're a tribal no. species, right? right? Whoever raises us, we usually say yes to yeah. them, right? We are, we're compliant to whatever. And so I, I think it would have been fairly incomprehensible for there to be a pledge of allegiance to a government. And that's effective stuff. You know, every morning, yeah. every morning, uh, we would stand for the Canadian National Anthem. Yeah. We, we did a pledge to the Queen <laughs> so, in boarding school. Yeah. We, you know, it's what Hitler did. Yeah. You know, it's a, again, it's a stretch, but Hitler required all of the soldiers to make a pledge to obey the sure. Nazi government. Now, they don't do that stuff because they just think it's cool. They do it because right, it really because works, it actually when works when you make a commitment. Yeah. When you but certainly 100 years ago, it probably worked better. Yeah, because I'm, I'm imagining people listening and going, yeah, right, I had to do that stuff in the public school. I never took any of it seriously. I, don't, I didn't respect my teachers. I didn't respect Hitler. But that's probably not as, it's probably the case now that it's just not as effective as it used to be. But 100 years ago... yeah. There was an ethos of, you know, attachment to authority and to power and a prevailing idea that the state was the thing that organized us, you know? Well, and of course, the state you had allegiance to 130 years ago was 120th the size of the state you have allegiance That's to That's true. So, yeah. So maybe there was a little more understandable why maybe people would go along with this. I think there was a great confusion in the late 19th century about cause and effect, actually. The more I look at it, the what more do you I mean? Well, what I mean is that, um, look, in the last quarter of the 19th century, we saw the invention of, you know, we saw railroads, we saw steel, really. Yeah. And so, therefore, bridges and possibility of skyscrapers, electricity, <laughs> flight, this is some cool stuff. I mean, you could see that we were catapulting into a new age. But there was, it was a pre-paradigmatic state of history in the sense that exactly what was causing life to become more spectacular mm. was a little blurry. You know, um, people understood that their entrepreneurs were kind of cool and that, that global markets were important, but also states were claiming very much credit for all these things. You know, mm. as soon as the technology came along, the state would grab onto it and say, okay, now railroads, let's regulate them, let's make them ours, you know, let's use them for our purposes. Flight, you know, that was, you know, this is very much, uh, I mean, the Wright brothers, you know, sought the patent out from the, from the federal government. Uh, internal combustion is, this, is the same way. And so there was a mixture in people's minds, like, what is causing what? Right. And so we get, we get to the 20th century and, and the pre-paradigmatic stage where people didn't understand it precisely was the relationship between cause and effect. Why were we getting still more processing? They still don't. Right. But they suddenly they there was... The financial deregulation caused... They do, they, they do. The but certainly by the time we get into the 20th century, there's a paradigm emerging, and it's, and it's the state, you yeah. know, that, that this is the way we have to organize society. It's, uh, if we're ever going to make any more progress, we've got to do it through our 
through public channels, through through our leadership. These right. are the people that are going to do it for. And so therefore, we got you know, for example, central banking, and uh, among well, probably the worst single institution ever invented. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's vastly yeah. underappreciated to the yeah. degree to which the central banking enables so many other human evils. I mean, this idea that you treat the unborn as collateral for debt, yeah. it's literally something out of, there's a great novel by Gogol called Dead Souls. Mm-hmm. He goes around trying to buy the souls of serfs who've died, and <sighs> it, it's, it's a fantastic story. Uh, 19th century Russian story. It's this absurd that we literally yeah. are auctioning off people who don't even exist yet for the sake of consumption. In the and process. if there weren't a central bank, what would have happened to this debt? It would have been just, it never would have gone anywhere in a market. Like nobody would have ever bought it, right? It would have been just subject to a default premium. Well, yeah, okay. If they had, everybody, of course, as you know, went into World War I thinking it was going to be over by Christmas, right? Yeah. I think it was August or September and it started. And that's because that's what happened, because you ran out of money. That's right? it. Wars had to end because you ran out of money, right. particularly with a deployment in the millions. Yeah, so you you're, simply you're, ran out of money. You're 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 leading the war. You're the politician. You're the general. You're looking at the balance sheet, going, "This isn't really going to work." Yeah, for we, us like, much we gotta, we gotta, we gotta push, yeah. push, push, right? What enabled the stagnation on the Western Front, in particular, to continue uh, for over four years was the central banking. Yeah. And and what that was was basically saying, "We will enslave people after the war to pay for the murder." Yeah. During the war. Right. Right. So all the all the guys who make it home, their kids are going to get born, and they're going to have to pay off this debt. Right. Uh, that's not possible. You can't. I mean, you can't have intergenerational debt in a banking system. You, it's not legally possible, and the common right. law would never support it. Right? right. I can't say I'm going to buy a car, and Jeff's grandchildren are going to you stiff them. No, that's right. That's it would right. Never, it would never work. Right? Yeah. It would Never happen. And so, literally, the, the human carnage, this this stuckness that occurred, uh, occurred as a result of selling the future. Right. As Mises said, you you have to go to war with what you have now. Right? There is no right. magic way to create stuff, right? And right. so they bled the future. And the degree to which all the e- economic instability between the Second World Wars was created as a result of the, the, the First World War That's and the, the mess of the economies that it produced. And then you ha- also have the institution of uh, sort of unconditional surrender, right? I mean, old-fashioned states couldn't afford to press for unconditional surrender. No, they're always looking for a, yeah. a, a settled result where under the presumption that, that, that peace is is less costly than war. But that changed entirely. You, I, I mean, I, there's no proof of this, but I can't imagine. I think there would have been just worldwide revolution. If, if after 10 million people had died, they'd have basically come back and the, the, the lines had remained the same, people would have gone insane. Like, in my, in my family, four of my great-grandfather died. Four, four out of five children died uh, in the, in in the World First World War. Now, Amazing. if they'd gone back and the lines had pretty much stayed the same yeah. after four years, there would have been revolutions. Yeah. They, you had to push to unconditional surrender so that otherwise you'd face a revolution at home. Like, what, the, what was all that for? Yeah. Right? So you had to say, you know, we're going to push, we're going to win, we're going to win, and all that kind of stuff. And these horrible unintended consequences. I mean, the First World War is just one of these cauldrons you could spend your whole life studying. Yeah, it really is. And there was, a, there was a blowback after the war. Even so, people looked back and said, what, what the hell was all that about? And, uh, and there were hearings uh, in Washington about, you know, the, and there were best-selling books about the people who profited from the war. Yeah. Uh, the, one, was one of the best books that was, I forget now the name of it, but just treating the war machine as a kind of this parasite on yeah. society. Yeah. There's a great deal of anti-war sentiment. Um, um, Paris 1919 is a great book to read about how yeah. awful the peace settlements were and how yeah. horrible and corrupt the negotiations were. Yeah. And there's this great argument which is made, which is the idea that uh, America's involvement 
is one of the things that made it possible to push for unconditional surrender. Otherwise, they were all exhausting themselves. Like in Vietnam, the entire military structure was breaking down. Yeah. People were literally shooting themselves. They were shooting their officers, mm. as what happened in Vietnam with prolonged right. warfare. Right. Um, you know, in the Second World War, the average uh, infantryman in the Pacific theater saw 10 days of combat a year because it took forever to get them anywhere. Yeah. In Vietnam, you had helicopters and everything. Yeah. These guys were doing 280 days of combat a year. In the First World War, it was like 365 days of combat a year because you're in these trenches where nobody can get anywhere. Right. And they were literally, psychology was breaking down. This is where shell shock first showed up uh, as a phenomenon. And so America comes in. They could then push for this unconditional surrender. But because America comes in and starts pushing eastward into Germany, Germany has to close down the Western Front. So they send Lenin off armed and funded to Russia, causing the Russian Revolution, which then ends up with a Cold War, you know, uh, with yeah. America for the next for 50 years after the second war, 40 years after the second well, war. Well, so the Cold War comes about uh, only only after we, we we had a wonderful, mighty alliance with, oh, yeah. with Stalin. So. It's a great quote from Churchill when he said, you know, they said, but isn't Stalin a dictator? And he said, well, I can't do a great Churchill, but it's like, Olive. If Satan were to, no, if if uh, if Hitler were to invade hell itself, I'm sure I could find something nice to say about the devil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, it was just geopolitics. And it changed, right? So we had a red scare in the 20s. Suddenly, there are great allies, and uh, well, they provided the great model for our uh, reforms of the New Deal, agri American agricultural oh, yeah. policy, and it was specifically modeled on the Soviet model. And the worst thing, oh, the worst thing for me. I don't know if I'll get into this in speech tonight, but the, the worst thing for me is the degree to which the virus of collectivism and socialism transferred across the Atlantic as a result of what happened. Amazing. Right? So, so uh, all of the intellectuals who had built the ideological, the Fabian socialists, all the intellectuals who built this superstructure, which enabled these fascistic and Nazi and communist totalitarian states to emerge, all fled the results of that during the war, came to America and to <laughs> Canada yeah. and set themselves up as university professors. Yeah. Uh, and then what happened was... All of the soldiers at the end of the war got a thousand bucks, which is seventy-five thousand dollars now, to go through their education. And so it's like, so thank they're, you they're so much for them. fighting to die and, ah. against socialism. Now we're going to pay for you to be indoctrinated by socialist professors. Extraordinary. And for a result of that, you get the '60s, which was the, yeah, the I don't think of the I, I am almost certain that you're the first person I've ever heard make that uh, observation. Mm. That's absolutely brilliant. Horrendous. Yeah. I mean, the, the virus transferred and then transmitted itself to, right. to the Americans as as oh. Thank you for, you know, dying by the millions to fight national socialists, and now we're going to pay for you to go be indoctrinated by the same people who provided the foundation for the So that we can have it. So we can have it right here. Yeah, so we yeah, can have it more right war. here. And yeah. then a generation after the GI Bill, you get the war yeah. on poverty. You get yeah. the Great Society. You get the mass Medical socialism. Medical socialism. Uh, socialism yeah. Canada, war on drugs. Yeah, war on drugs. The massive expansion comes right afterwards. And yeah. this is how you lose wars. Yeah. Forget about killing all the people. That's horrible enough. But then when the same virus that caused the war to begin with gets, you pay right. to have it transferred to your own population. Right. I think I did a video recently where eight of the ten planks of the Communist Manifesto have been already implemented yeah. in America. That's fun. After it's, fighting the communist yeah. virus for, you know, it's horrible. Because so, I, I grew up actually in these times of, uh, I remember the tail end of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And it was always set up, you know, as freedom versus, versus collectivism, you know, communism versus capitalism. And you look back at it, and it's just so preposterous. I mean, just the, that that anybody could have imposed this narrative on 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 a world that was, you know, far more complicated. Uh, we were losing freedom here. The yeah. more we fought yeah. uh, tyranny abroad, the more we actually had it right here. In Canada, it was. I wasn't here in Canada. I came in '77, but there was a, a hockey game. Uh, you you followed hockey, right? There was a Canadian 
versus Soviet hockey game in the 70s. What, what year was that? 72, right? Okay. So 1972, and I wasn't here, but, but the stories were everyone was glued to the, like, we have to win against the Russians. Right? Yeah. And I, thought, I remember hearing that story thinking, how decadent are we as a society that it hinges on a game? Yeah. You know, we can't beat the ideology, we can't win the war of ideas, right. we can't, but boy, if that puck lands in the net. <laughs> the West, you know, it's like, oh, that's so beautiful. How, how it's a bit, you know, in so many ways, our, we're better off today than we were during those ghastly years of the Cold War, oh, which I were just that. a tremendous distraction against the, the key issue. Issue, which is always human liberty versus versus uh, the power elite. That's uh, that's always the real narrative of history. That whole Cold War was just a, a deflecting of attention away from that. But for me, there was a genuine fear of nuclear war. In those oh sure. When they came up with these movies, uh, the day after, I don't know if you. Yeah, remember, I, I do remember the day space. after. Yeah. I remember watching that and feeling just such a sense of impotent rage. Yeah. Like just. Terror, rage, fear. It was a very real possibility. Yeah. There was this bulletin of the atomic scientists. They had this this clock that was like three yeah. minutes to midnight. How close yeah. we are to a nuclear war? We There's a the whole generation. Yeah, I remember. I think I was a part of one or two of those um, uh, in the other days. That was a very real fear. I remember. Yeah. I remember in 2000, uh, I was uh, living downtown and I was in a hot tub after working out. And there was a woman who was sitting there and we were chatting, and uh, you know, she was saying, uh, "Oh yeah, you older guys, because you know." Are you all the guys? Yeah, you had lots of fears. Like, well, what are you guys really worried about? Like, Y2K. Like, really? Y2K? Y2K? We had like, yeah. nuclear shadows uh, yeah. up against the wall, and you're worried about your, you know, your alarm clock blinking too long or something, you know? So I think there is improvement. Our, our fears are less now yeah. than they were. Although we still have the, the, the nuclear bombs that people don't fear. For we don't, use I don't think people really, you don't. You don't think like, but we we had protesters who would go to downtown Toronto, yeah. and they would they would actually draw shadows yeah, about sure. themselves, right? And sure. shadows they were everywhere, and this yeah. was a reminder of what could happen with these kinds of wars. Yeah, although you know it's funny because I talked to scientists and economists who actually lived in Russia at the time, and, and so you know they said that there was no way that that Russia would have ever released these things. They couldn't find anybody to push the buttons. Actually, do you know what the launch codes were in America? No. What do you mean? Eight zeros. Oh yeah. Yeah. Really? Zeros, just zeros. Oh, yeah? So, in, in other words, if somebody had leaned on the key, oh, you know, like, it was not... Uh, the US, I mean, the U.S. Number. is the only country that's ever used nuclear weapons against, against innocents anyway, so against, against people anyway, so... Yeah. But in any case, back, back to the, uh, uh, the message uh, that you have tonight. Um, Bitcoin sort of reveals what money can be and should have been all yeah, along. Yeah, that you cannot, yeah. you cannot run a war on Bitcoin. To yeah. Be one of the most foundational reasons why people should be interested in it. I mean, to end the scourge of war is the greatest goal of humanity. I mean, if we could live a life without fear of war. And we'll still, you know, let's say we still have taxation and, and, you know, still have all of the mass of the welfare state. But if we have a technology that pushes the costs of war lust to the people who want it, then we have a way of not socializing the costs of evil while privatizing the profits of war. I mean, I made this argument years ago about the war on terror costs, sorry, the war on drugs costs like a, I don't know, $200 billion a year or whatever. And of course, there should be a vote. If you're for it, great, we'll send you the bill. 
right? How many hands go down, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. So Cheech and Chong and everyone who watches their movies, their hands go down, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. right? So, and then, so then for everyone, like, let's say half the people's hands go down, then it becomes double the price for those people, right. which causes more hands to go down. And eventually one guy is like, when he's faced with $200 billion bill, he's like, I think I've found tolerance in my heart for right. those who, right? So if you can push the costs of those who want to control others onto them, right. they will find tolerance. You know, when you can't reason with people, you can at least appeal to economic uh, survival right. instincts, right? So uh, right now, you have to support the war on drugs, and you have to fund the war on terror, whether you like it or not. This is impossible in the Bitcoin architecture. You, you, you'd have to make a business case for a war, and you can't conceive of it. Now, is this, is this more of a, a polemical point or just a theoretical point, or do you see the uh, use of Bitcoin as actually making war less likely in the future? No, I, my, my argument is that if we only had Bitcoin, yeah. war would be impossible. Yeah. So the more Bitcoin we use, the less, less we depend entirely on national monies. Well, it's the cure, whether people yeah. want to adopt it or not. Yeah. Like, let's, and my argument tonight is going to be, let's say, let's say Bitcoin cured cancer. Well, or prevented cancer, or heart disease, or whatever would be the major killers, right? It's war, heart disease, yep. and, and cancer, the major killers, right? Well, what would be people, people would be writing about, Bitcoin cures cancer, Bitcoin cures, like, right. oh my God, Bitcoin cures cancer, and people wouldn't be saying, well, the blockchain might get too big to propagate. Like, you would just be like, <laughs> oh my God, whatever we have to do to, to adopt this cure yeah. for cancer, but this is a cure for war. Yeah. People should be focusing on that. They're yeah. getting too swept up in the technical minutiae, and, and I, it, it's a cure for war. Yeah. I mean, and this is what everybody wants who's yeah. not, like, ghastly in the soul. And there are other humanitarian aspects to this, too, and we barely can scratch the surface, but, I mean, the inclusion of the financially excluded around the world, and we're talking about billions of people, is, is a gigantic humanitarian project that will be accomplished through cryptocurrency. Yeah. And I think people are only just now beginning to realize this. I mean, you know, um, there's so much human energy in the world that's not being used yeah. for, for productive purposes because you know, people live in the wrong IP range or they just don't have a, a bank or a credit card or something like this. And um, Bitcoin can unleash that um, and, and allow the, the world to become truly cooperative you know, in an e economic uh, way. And there's been very little written about this subject, but it's, it's gigantic. Well, socialists, I mean, those who genuinely care about the poor should yeah. be all over Bitcoin. Oh, they should. enabler of the energies yeah. of the poor. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's, there's two ways that people approach helping the poor, right? The hand right. or the handout. Bitcoin is clearly the hand up, right. which is far more respectful of the poor than right. just keeping them on that doled out leash of political support to right. whoever's doing the doling. But I, I think that the leftists, uh, are, I think, of, of lower quality than they used to be. I think originally there was some idealization about yeah, the poor. There was. I think at some now point. it's not really that way. Uh, they just seem to be sort of petty and resentful, and, and oh, they've turned into those That's right. caricatures. Yeah, the, of, yeah um, just think you, you wash your clothes too much, you take too long showers. And yeah, they're the next. Yeah. They're, they're, they're like you know, finger wagging matrons, you know. You know, they're not really inspiring figures. I mean, like the Shavian socialists, the, the, the progressives at the turn of the 20th yeah. century, they genuinely felt that they had the cure to the ills, yeah. the, the disparities and blah, blah, blah. But they should be all over. You know, people into foreign aid, people into helping the third world should be all over. Yeah, if you're genuinely in favor of human progress, you should be able to look at Bitcoin as a model. Uh, something to adopt, something to celebrate, but just as a beginning. You know, in my own case, I think, I think it was February of 2013 that I discovered Bitcoin for the first time. You were there way longer, way, way before I was. But it changed everything about my outlook. It made me realize 
just how many, how much potential there is for progress in the world. And it was at that month, I think it was the month later, I first began to imagine uh, Liberty.me as, mm. as, a, as a piece I of real estate. Yeah. And how that's going and all yeah. that. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, it, and it made me realize that, okay, we live in a digital age. Uh, there's, this is a new frontier for us, that the p- potential for humanity to, to, to migrate in a, in a way and use these tools to improve life has, is not yet exploited entirely. So I became just completely obsessed with the idea of creating this digital city. And um, now we're, we're about one year later. You know, we've got the financing. I've been building since October. And I just woke up this morning. And it was just so exciting, Stefan, because uh, I saw for the first time the live chat feature and oh, yeah live instant messaging between members and it was just like breathing and living because up to now we've yeah we've had the multi-site blogging platforms and the and discussion forums and you know the, the news stream and um, you know everything's amazing about site but it still wasn't it wasn't quite breathing yet you know what i mean oh, I and know. and then when the chat came alive it was just like you could just hear the heartbeat you know through the screen right <laughs> what's happened just this morning for people who don't know right yeah. got me is is a um uh, basically a digital community for Liberty, any, anybody who loves liberty is yeah. uh, welcome to be there. Yeah. yeah, and we put everything that's possible, you know, into it. Many of the technologies we, we've been using have been only come, only been economically viable for maybe twelve months, maybe ten months, even. Right. You know, so that's how advanced it is. And and its uniqueness is that we put it all on one piece of real estate, both centralized and decentralized, both public and private. So. You know, every idea that I've ever had in the in this in the digital world has been crammed into this one thing, and it's starting to just be so elegant, so beautiful. We actually opened for the public in ten days. You know, so so we've <laughs> got we've got uh, we've got two hundred fifty beta members in. Now we're rolling in another few hundred every day. Right. But anyway, um, you know, in so many ways, I think Bitcoin inspired me to think about the possibility that this could actually be realized. And I think we're just at the beginning, right? I mean. Bitcoin is just the beginning of, of what's going to be possible uh, for humanity in the future. And this is so important for people who lose hope, is that you simply don't know what is coming. Yeah. You don't know what is coming. I mean, when I was doing my graduate degree, there was no internet to speak of. You could get on with a modem and talk to some library databases. Right. You have a couple of... Uh, there was sort of the infinite DOS that w- was going on back then. Right. It was really frankly unusable. I saw, first saw the GUI interface in the early 90s. I was visiting my college roommate who was doing his PhD, and he showed me this thing, and I was just literally jumping up and down. Like, really? got to change. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's like the infinite library of clickability. I mean, yeah. it was staggering. Everything before that was proprietary. Like, you could yeah. go into a particular place, but it was just there. And nobody could have guessed before the Internet what was possible uh, after the Internet. It came out of nowhere. Like, boom, oh, suddenly everyone can talk to everyone for free. <laughs> what? In real time. And, and podcasting, yeah. right? Then when bandwidth yeah. costs went down and yeah. speed went up, podcasting was really impossible early on because bandwidth yeah. costs were too expensive. And, oh, I see. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you couldn't, I mean, you'd have to make it such low quality so that people could download it on right. a 2400 board modem that right. it wouldn't be possible, right? But the internet came out of nowhere. Bitcoin came out of nowhere. We it's don't true. know what the next we thing don't is know. that is going to just completely blow historical paradigms out of the water. Yeah. Like you can't lose hope because that is to say that everyone is going to fail. That every opportunity, every possibility with the greatest tech communications and, and electronic technology the world has ever seen, that's right. That nobody can come up with. Like, oh yeah. Digital currency, encrypted, uh, open source, uh, truly democratic with DRO or, or dispute resolution built in. Like, 
when I was first writing these articles way back in 05, this was like a complete fantasy. You know, that you would have currency with with this uh, dispute resolution. Way back in 05, yeah. right, I mean, yeah. And, and I had no, I don't have the technical chops to develop anything like right. that, but, but then it's suddenly, it's there. And we don't know tomorrow, sometime no. maybe working on the next thing. And, and I think it's really up to us day. to try to establish the cause and effect here. Like I was saying earlier, late 19th century, people were very confused. Mm. Why was all this progress happening? Uh, or is, it, is it because of private markets or is it because of you know, public authority? But, but, and even now there's confusion, you know? But people need to get the message that the reason the app economy exists, the reason why your cell phone is, a, is an amazing knowledge generator, you know, this, you know, all human knowledge in my pocket, you know? Exactly. The reason we, we have Bitcoin is because of the unleashing of human knowledge within the sphere of, of exchange and trade and freedom and creativity. It has nothing to do with states. The states have held us back for a very long time. It's only now we're breaking free of them that we're starting to see human creativity just just being put to the cause of human service yeah. and the ennoblement of the whole of humanity. And we need to understand that cause and effect. I mean, it's freedom that is the source of, of our flourishing. Yeah, and because we, I think I certainly do occasionally still struggle with how is it going to... You know, how's it going to change? I mean, the, it's so big. The state is so, so yeah. big. It's so monolithic. The, 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 the entrenchment, the dependent classes, the vote buying. The, I mean, it's one out of three Americans now needs, needs a license to practice their occupation. Oh, listen. And, and yeah. The, the half of them are dependent on the state for significant. And, but then I remember that to lose hope is, is fundamentally an act of arrogance. It's saying that, that we can't win and there's no possibility but of you know it. What's but saying there's no possibility in the realm of human creativity is an impossible thing It's to do. right. And what's cool about our times, I just got back from Brazil. There is no Brazilian who doesn't understand the source of the problem. I mean, everybody in Brazil knows why their, their economy is not growing, you know, why the political system is, is totally corrupt, you know, why they're less prosperous than they need to be. And, and the answer is that this, this, this state is just living as a parasite on the people. I mean, there's nobody in Brazil who doesn't get this. Yeah. The key problem that they're facing is what to do about it. Right. But that, in a way, is progress. Because if you understand the source of the problem, then you can get you, put your mind to work on finding creative solutions to it. But if you don't know the source of the problem, which, I mean, quite frankly, um, it wasn't true you know, in many parts of the world, even 50 years ago, people did not understand why we're we getting poor. You know, what's going on? People do understand that now. I don't care where you go in the world today. And I've, I've been traveling a lot, as you yeah. have been. I mean, it's a universal now. In Australia, they understand the source of the problem. In Brazil, they understand the source of the problem. In America, probably less so, but, you know, we're getting there. We're getting well, there. but America is still propped up, right? I mean, so much yeah. debt, so much fiat currency yeah. is being pumped through the system yeah. that, I mean... Asking America to give up status and right now is like asking a gambler to leave a casino in the middle of a winning streak. Yeah. You know, all reality is suspended. He can't lose. He's high. He's, you know, yeah. like it's just, you have to. Unfortunately, America and most of the West is still not able to listen to a moral argument, to reason. And whenever you have a bad habit, you either learn by reason or by bitter experience. And yeah. I think that's just why there is going to have to be some significant readjustment. And then when people have sufficient pain, they will change their behavior. Uh -huh. um, but uh, it's still, I mean, we're all making the case for it. And there's lots of people who are listening, but there are lots more people who are, you know, doing the la, 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 right? You know, yeah. history will we'll survive all this. It's just numbers and so on, right? Yeah. Reality has to, you know, just smack you upside the head with a wet fish. Well, I take comfort in the, in the popularity of, of your podcast, actually, and your videos that mm -hmm. you, especially that which you've achieved over the last, what, year? Since Mike came on board. Yeah. 
It's been Is it's that been whipping the beast. Yeah, it's been amazing to watch. You know, you're you're reaching ever more people than you ever have before, and engaging them in a conversation, which is just as important mm-hmm. as as teaching, to uh, to converse with them. You know, yeah. and and to develop this conversation, which you believe in. In fact, I I, was, I remember your paper that you delivered in Texas. You remember that conference? I think it was one of the first times. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you made a startling claim that you think that for the first time in, in history, we have the possibility of developing a consistent ethic within the framework of sort of a global anarchist community mm-hmm. because we're not constantly making exceptions to make room for the state yeah. as almost every moral system uh, prior to the, to the current age sort of had to do in a way. Do you remember making oh, this yeah. argument? Yeah. That was really mind-blowing. Uh, paper, very impressive. Well, I hope that it's. Uh, I hope it's going to be the case. I think. It, I think it will be. Human beings tend towards consistency. Yeah. Like my daughter is incredible to listen to this way, right? So I'll say, oh, you know, when I was a kid, you know, we didn't really have any money, and she's like, you didn't have no money, like you had a couple of pa- you had a couple of dollars, like not no money, and I'm like, you know, you're absolutely correct. <laughs> So she's constantly, like, whenever I get any hyperbole, yeah, she's yeah. constantly, well, no, that can't be true that you had, you know, well, we were hungry a lot of the time. But it's not that you had no food, right? You yeah. just didn't have as much or as much as you wanted. It's like, so she's constantly tending towards accuracy and consistency. Uh-huh. Uh, and consistency is the great power of the human mind. Yeah. Science is all consistency, uh-huh. right? And, and so on. Double-blind experiments in medicine are all about reproducibility and consistency. Uh, and so when we get when we don't have to ripple ethics around the opposite of what we define as virtue called the state, boy, I mean, that to me is the greatest engine we're capable of. And then we will finally have all the power of consistency and universality, which is the seat of our genius as a species, in the most central aspect of our species, which is ethics. I mean, boy, unstoppable then. Well, and, and two, uh, it's, it's wonderful that we're moving into a world where the nation state is, is, is no longer the thing that defines us like it once did, um, which is another feature of Bitcoin that's, that's very interesting. It is a global currency that exists apart from the nation state. There's no American Bitcoin, Brazilian Bitcoin, Australian Bitcoin. It's all the same thing. And, and any two people anywhere in the world can use it. This has not really happened before, you know? I mean, like, even when, and you think about the, maybe the height of the gold standard of, you know, I don't know, the early part of the 19th century or something like that, when all world currencies were more or less convertible into gold, you still had national paper monies, yeah. you know? But Bitcoin is, is a universal uh, currency. And trade unites, right? It's the old yeah. standard, right? I think it was Bastiat who said where trade stops, yeah. armies... Where trade stops crossing borders, arms will stop. Yeah, right? And right. so trade unites. If you're doing business with someone in Zimbabwe, yeah. your country is Bitcoin. Your, your identity, yeah. your nationality, your link to them is with Bitcoin. Yeah. You have more in common than with the guy using paper currency next door. Yeah. Right? I mean, and, and that, I think, is a real way of uniting the spider web of Bitcoin going out across the universe uh, that is dissolving borders. It just crosses whether who cares, right? I mean, Amazing. you've got to stop and show your papers, and you can't bring more than like $8 across a border, but a million dollars can squirt through Bitcoin yeah. and even trace. It. I mean, yeah. it's uh, the unity that is possible. It was a view. I, you know, I think about all the scenes that have inspired me over the last several weeks. But truly, being in Porto Alegre at this, uh, this uh, big financial symposium, educational thing, and and having a, a Bitcoin ATM right <laughs> yeah, there, exactly. and having people in a line. Yeah turning in their government paper currency yeah. and holding up their cell phones getting their Bitcoin out. I mean, that was really cool. Yeah. That is cool. Happening all over the world. We have one more to do before my speech. 
Okay. Chat. Thank don't you. want to tire you out. Don't me. Go, go check, uh, check out this website. It's a I was showing website. it to Michael a little bit ago, and you were amazed. Well, yeah, when, it's when, looking good. Like, I know okay, you're going to be no, crazy no, no, when you go public, no, no. let's do a demo. We'll record the screen. We'll get Okay, let's do the whole thing. I'll yeah, give yeah. you a complete tour. I mean, yeah. a complete tour at this point takes maybe 10 or 15. It's not a complete tour, but 10 no, or 15 when, minutes. Like, we'll, I want to show everyone yeah, what it is. I mean, we're doing, what, 3 million plus show downloads. Yeah, okay. Let's get some people to... Yeah, let's do it. We'll turn you into Kathleen Sebelius, right? So this is very important. <laughs> yeah, right. like, we thought it could handle this many people. But <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, it just this morning was such an exciting thing for me. I mean, just just to see the, the heart beating on the site like yeah. that. I mean, because, you know, we've worked so hard for so long. And you have such dreams, mm. you know. And then it's funny. Like, the one final piece goes into place and then... You know, that's what it was like for me today. It's, a, it's the liveliest thing to see is the cross-chat, right? Yeah. Hosting is kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. But just seeing the cross-chat is yeah, exciting. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, liberty.me, go, go check it out. But we'll okay, do a we'll do a full demo. Yeah. That sounds yeah. a lot of fun. Okay, thank you. Oh, thank very, you. Okay, wonderful. And I look forward to your speech tonight. Oh, I think it's going to be good. <laughs>